greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we bless you that our great sin grew, drew out your great grace in Jesus that night. When the weight of our guilt pressed down on Jesus until grace oozed from his very heart. And we need that grace this morning. We need you to reveal to us in Jesus the mercy that is more than our sin. And so we ask that by your spirit you would come and show us Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, for the sake of time, I just want to get right to it. 
and uh, ask you, in what area of life, in what area of your life, is God asking you to submit to him? How is he asking you to submit his will, submit to his will for your life in such a way that it feels like it's going to kill you to do it? Is there something that you know that God wants you to do that you're putting off or you're making excuses for not doing it? Is there something that you know God wants you to stop doing that you frankly don't want to stop doing? What is God asking you to do or to not do that that seems impossible to do or not to do? You see, each of us has been put in a garden by God. Each one of us has a place in which he's put us and he's asked us to watch and to pray and to obey. He's asked us to stay awake. He's asked us to pray and be in constant communion and communication with him. And he's asked us to submit to his will for us, which Jesus said was ultimately to love God in that place he's put us with all that we are and to love the people in those places he puts us with the same love that Christ has shown us, a sacrificial giving love. All of us have been placed God in a garden to watch, pray, and obey. But we're just like those disciples, which is why I love that they just write these gospels and show all their flaws. We're just like them. We struggle to stay awake. We struggle to stay in communion with God, and we struggle to obey Him. People have failed God in their gardens since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve failed to watch, pray, and obey in the Garden of Eden. And as we heard earlier in Romans 5, by Adam's disobedience, we're all made betrayers. We're all made people who fail to watch, pray, and obey. And all of us, like Adam, deserve to be separated from the fellowship of God, kicked out of the garden, because we've not submitted to his good and gracious heart for us. And friends, this is what caused Jesus to be greatly distressed and troubled on that Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark said he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to James and Peter and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. His his own grief was going to kill him. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Why? Why the grief? Why the anguish? It's because Jesus came to the Garden of Gethsemane to do what Adam should have done in the Garden of Eden. 
He came to submit his will to the will of the one who cares for him, who communes with him, who has commissioned him. And what the first Adam refused to do, the second Adam, Jesus, was resolved to do. Jesus was overcome in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane with sorrow because he was about to overcome the sin that first took root in the Garden of Eden and has taken root in each of us and borne fruit in each of us since then. Here in Gethsemane, Jesus is preparing to take upon himself all of the garden betrayals of all of his people throughout all ages. He talked about this cup that he wants his father to remove from him. What did Jesus see in this cup? This cup that he begged to be removed from him. What did he see in this cup that was crushing him with astonished grief? It was not simply the excruciating pain that would be caused by that scourge that shredded his back or by the humiliating punches to his blindfolded face or the plucking out of his beard or the thorns that would be jammed into his scalp or the spikes that would be driven into his wrists or even the slow suffocation of hanging on the cross. It, it's not just that physical suffering. No, in addition to that physical suffering, Jesus was overwhelmed with the prospect of spiritual and relational suffering, and he began to face it in the garden on Thursday night. Someone suggested that it was a cup full of sin, and a cup full of wrath. So I want to look at those two things. What, what was Jesus seeing when he looked into the cup full of sin? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that for our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, who knew no sin of his own, saw Adam and Eve's sin in that cup, Adam and Eve who committed treason as they double-crossed their creator by taking sides with his enemy, the serpent. By exchanging the worship of their creator for the worship of his creation. They denied God's rule over their lives by disobeying his word and doing what was right in their own eyes. They deserted the God who cared for them and communed with them and commissioned them. They deserted him by stepping outside of the circle of his love and his purpose for their lives. God had commanded Adam to guard and keep this garden. But when the tempter came slithering into the garden, Adam did not keep watch. He didn't watch with protection over his companion or the creation. He was silent in the face of the serpent's temptation. And he didn't pray. He didn't talk to God. He didn't talk to the snake and tell him to get out of here. He didn't talk to God and say, God, can you help us with this temptation? He was silent. He didn't watch and pray, and so he fell into temptation. So Jesus saw Adam and Eve's sin in the cup, but he also saw his disciples' sin in that cup. I don't believe it's by accident that the story of the Garden of Gethsemane is surrounded by all these stories we've been reading these past few weeks. 
of the double-crossing and denial and desertion by his disciples. Though Jesus asked them repeatedly, Peter, James, and John could not watch and pray with him for even an hour. And they all caved to temptation. Judas double-crossed Jesus. Peter denied him. They all deserted him. In fact, their desertion of Jesus was so utterly complete that one of them, who many scholars believe was actually John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. Mark was so committed to not being identified with Jesus that he ran away naked. That's how committed he was to running away from Jesus. And we can't help but remember those two who ran away from God naked in the Garden of Eden. So Jesus saw in that cup the sin of his disciples. But then Jesus, who knew no sin, he saw our sin in that cup. He saw your sin, he saw my sin. Because we too double-cross him and deny him and desert him in the gardens God has put us. Think about the horror of this. Jesus had never sinned and was about to take upon himself every single sin of every single person for whom he came to die. Every lie, every lustful thought, every fantasy, every act of adultery and perversion, every instance of using Jesus' own name uh, as profanity rather than praise, every outburst of anger or seething contempt that we have for someone we just can't stand. every cynical, snide remark we make behind their backs, every envious, idolatrous desire for stuff that we don't have, and and every greedy grip on the stuff that we do have. All the ways that we have disobeyed or dishonored our parents were in that cup. All the ways that we have refused to hear from God by reading the Bible or we have refused to talk to God in prayer. Every waste of the time and treasures and talents God has given us. Every instance in which by our thoughts and our words and our actions and our desires, we've not loved God with all we are and have not loved our neighbors and the nations and the next generation the way Jesus has loved us. Now, That's just a partial list of my own sins, and it's overwhelming enough. But there was more in the cup. John Calvin said this, even if we were carefully to examine just one minute of our lives, we would find ourselves worthy of eternal death. He says, Indeed, each one of us would discover ourselves to be sinners, not just in one area, but a hundred thousand, not due to one fault, but to countless millions. So, can you begin to imagine what Jesus was facing? Jesus, who never, ever sinned in any of these ways or in any other way, who only and always obeyed the whole law of God with his whole life, was crushed under the weight of the sorrow for sin that would become his to bear. 
And he did that for you, and he did that for me. He did that for your sin, he did that for my sin. Because he had no sin of his own. He who had no sin became sin for us. But it was not only our sin that caused him sorrow, it's not only the sin that he saw in the cup that made him grieve, it was also the wrath of God that he saw in that cup. The Old Testament uses this cup of wrath symbolism quite a few times. For example, in Isaiah 51, the Lord says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the cup of staggering. As our sin bearer, Jesus became the object of the Father's holy wrath against sin. Drinking this cup also made him a curse. And Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So gazing into this cup, Jesus saw hell opened for him and he staggered. It's no wonder that we see the blood like sweat and that we hear him crying out for deliverance with loud cries and tears. It's no wonder that we read in Luke that the Father had to send an angel to strengthen him in the garden that night. Friends, Jesus did not come to a garden to wrestle with the will of God by accident. He came to a garden to make it abundantly clear that his act of garden obedience would mean for, would mean for us forgiveness for our acts of garden disobedience. William Barclay summed it up this way. The first Adam began life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior overcame sin. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented himself. Friends, this is good news. He loves us, and he gave himself for us. And so I come back to my original question for us. In what area of your life is God asking you to submit to him in your garden of Gethsemane? In what area of your life is God asking you to obey him? Is he asking you to stay awake how is he asking you to stay in communion and communication with him through constant prayer? How is he asking you to obey him by aligning your will with his will, even if it kills you? And I want you to know, I want you to be encouraged that when you wrestle with whatever this area of submission is, and I have mine, I promise you, remember this, Jesus watched and prayed and obeyed in your place so that now you can watch and pray and obey by his grace. He watched and prayed and obeyed in your place, in my place, so that now we can watch and pray and obey 
by his grace. How does that work? Paul says in Galatians 4, I think he gives us a hint of how this works. Paul said that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under, who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has spent the, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And when you read that, you should think of Abba, Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus lived the life of obedience to God's law that Adam should have lived in the Garden of Eden, and he lived the life of obedience to God's law that we should live in the places he puts us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sub submitted to his father's plan to die the death that Adam deserved to die in the Garden of Eden and to die the death that we should die because of our disobedience in the places God puts us. And so, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into the hearts of all those who are trusting in Christ's obedience in their place. And for those who are trusting in Christ's obedience in their place, Christ's Spirit lives in us crying out, Abba, Father. The Spirit of Jesus who prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That same spirit of loving submission lives in you if you trust Christ, if you are his. If you are in Christ Jesus and he is in you by his spirit, then no matter how weak your flesh is, you have a willing spirit in you who longs and loves to do whatever your good father asks of you. And in the meantime, as you're wrestling with the very thing that he is asking you to do in submission to him or not do in submission to him, at the very same time, you can pour out your heart to your good father like Jesus did. Listen to the intimate, tender, relational way Jesus prays. It's a, it's a tender, pleading, familiar way for a child to address his father when he's acutely aware of his neediness. That's what Jesus is doing. Abba, Father. Mark even left the Aramaic word Abba that you would hear a child say as he's running to his mommy with a boo-boo. I may have shared this story with you before, but I remember in fourth grade, I was on a field trip with my school a couple of hours away from home. And our charter bus swerved to miss a truck and crashed head on into a huge tree. All of us were injured. I had a broken foot and blood was pouring out of my busted lip. I remember sitting on a grassy hillside as we all waited for the... Uh, ambulances to come and take us to the hospital. And I remember sitting there alone, rocking back and forth and saying, Mommy, Mommy, I, I want my Mommy. Mommy, 
I imagine that's the kind of heart that Jesus had when he was calling out to his father in the garden, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Father, I want you. We have to understand that the way that Jesus was able to submit to his father's goodwill from him, for him was because he rested in his father's good heart for him. He trusted his father would see him through the agony of obedience even if he chose not to rescue him from it. As Spurgeon once said, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. And I think this is a great expression of the relationship that Jesus had with his father. When, when he couldn't trace his hand, he just trusted his heart and he said, not my will but yours. I will do what you ask. And so must we, because we have his spirit living in us, crying out, Abba, Father, we can say, I, I can't understand why you're asking me to do or not do what you're asking me to do, Father. But I trust your heart. And I trust that your spirit is willing even when my flesh is weak. Friends, never ever forget that Jesus watched and prayed and obeyed in your place so that you and I could watch and pray and obey by his grace. So come this morning and find in Jesus the forgiveness you need for your failure to watch and pray and obey. Find in Jesus the grace you need to stay awake, the grace you need to commune and communicate with him all the time, the grace you need to submit to whatever it is he's asking you to do or not do. Come to Jesus. He is willing, even when you are not. Father, would you help us? Help us to come to that Jesus today, even as we come to this table, to the Jesus who watched and prayed and obeyed for us, even though he knew we couldn't do it, precisely because he knew we couldn't do it. He did it for us. And that's that kind of heart we can trust as we seek to submit to what you want us to do and not do in our lives. So God, come, help us, feed us with this Jesus this morning as we come to your table. Hey, God, we thank you for the opportunity to do this. It's been so long. Thank you for giving us this sweet little garden in front of Bachman to, to fellowship with you. Come, Holy Spirit. Spirit of Jesus, and feed our hearts, we ask in his name. Amen.